Good evening. My name is Vivian Fisher, and I manage the African American Department, and it's a pleasure to have you here this evening to welcome as our featured guest Brown Lecture Series speaker, Sonia D. Williams, who is a professor at Howard University's Department of Media, Journalism, and Film in Washington, D.C. She has worked as a broadcast journalist and media training in the Caribbean, Africa, and throughout the United States. She has received numerous awards, including three consecutive George Foster Peabody Awards, for writing and producing program segments for groundbreaking documentary series distributed by National Public Radio, Public Radio International, and the Smithsonian Institution. Moreover, several of her broadcast productions have been award-winning, including the 2009 Gracie Award for Uncrowned Queens, Voice of African American Women. Tonight, Williams will discuss her first book that documents the life and crusading spirit of gifted broadcast journalist, dramatist, and political strategist Richard Durnham. In her work, Word, Word Warrior, Richard Durnham, Radio and Freedom. Please join me in welcoming Sonia Williams to the Pratt Library. How's everybody doing? Good. I'm, I'm not going to stay at this podium because um, I feel like, okay, uh, I'm working uh, with, at school or something, and this is not um, a lecture. It really um, is going to be uh, a sharing of information, and, um, and I hope that by the time I finish, you'll be as enthralled with this man as I was. Um, one of the first questions that people always ask me is, how did I get involved in writing this book and what drew me to Richard Durham? And quite frankly, it was radio. Radio is, I won't say my first love, but it is a love. And I came to Richard Durham through radio. And I came to radio through my love of music. I grew up in uh, New York City listening to the radio, um, of course, Motown and all that. And um, music was my first love, is my first love. So music drew me to radio. Radio I continued to listen to. And I never thought that you could have a career in music. It was just something that was there and ever-present. Um, but when I got to college... My freshman year, one of my colleagues said, you know, you're a music major, right? And I said, yeah, I'm majoring in music. He said, well, I have this radio show on the campus station, and um, since you are a music major and you know music, why don't you come and help me with the show? I was like, okay, whatever. And the show was called The Touch of Love. And he was Brother Touch, and I was Sister Love. <laughs> Corny, corny. But, you know, it was like, okay, let's see where this goes. And we were spinning the hits and talking trash and, you know, and just having fun. And when I realized that people made a living doing this, I'm like, oh, wow, this could go somewhere. Um, but my interest really was more telling, telling stories and getting information and finding creative ways to tell that information either with music or without. So... Fast forward, I graduated from college, switched my major from music to communications, and then my first job was in public radio in <laughs> Cedar Falls, Iowa. Now, I'm a city girl, <laughs> and I went to school in Chicago. To end up in Iowa was, was really a trip. But the great thing about doing that was that I got a lot of experience in the, uh, in the industry, and then I moved to the West Coast and then uh, worked various other places. One of the things that working at um, KUNI in Cedar Falls, Iowa, was that it was public radio, and I was um, all of 20-something, and I had a chance to do a little bit of everything, announce, interview, um, write news stories for radio, um, and then produce other programs. And it was through my experience there that I decided eventually I wanted to move to D.C. and work for National Public Radio. <laughs> so I started applying, and, you know, of course they said, uh, you're how old and you have what kind of experience? 
go away and get some more. Well, then 20 years later, I'm here in D.C., and I get a chance to work at the place that I had really talked about working. So it's really kind of unique. Fast forward then to the mid-'90s. And um, I had worked on several other series uh, that, that NPR and the Smithsonian sponsored. One of those series, and I don't know if anybody ever heard it, was called Wade in the Water, African-American Sacred Music Traditions. Bernice Johnson Reagan, the historian, singer, lead founder of uh, Sweet Honey in the Rock, was the creator of that series, and she was the host. And I had a chance to work as one of the producers on that series, groundbreaking uh, 26 part, uh, 26 one hours. So we're going all over the country and finding out um, about interviewing people who were involved in sacred music in all its forms, contemporary, historic, and all. Um, but that was in 1992-94. In 1992-94, um, one of my colleagues said, you know, the, the Smithsonian um, has a documentary uh, unit, the National Museum of American History, and they just got funded to work on a series about the history of blacks and radio. And I'm like, I'm there. <laughs> so I applied, and, <clears throat> excuse me, and I got it. And that's how I came to find out about Richard Durham. One of my colleagues, actually two of my colleagues at Howard, had just worked on... Um, a series, a, a four-part series for Black History Month that recreated some of the episodes from Destination Freedom, which was Durham's um, claim to fame in radio. So they said, well, if you're working on this series and one of the shows that you have to produce is about radio during the 30s and 40s, then you have to include Richard Durham and you have to include this series called Destination Freedom. I had never heard of it. Um, but the minute I heard some of the episodes, it was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> this is something else. It was compelling. It was fascinating. It was, uh, it, it just really kind of drew me in. And so the more that I listened to the episodes, the more I wondered, well, who created this? And how did he do this? And how was this on the air in Chicago from 1948 to 1950? So having said that, you know, it's easy for me to talk about it. But I think the crowning uh, evidence would be if you heard a couple of episodes. So what I'm going to do is play just uh, uh, some clips from um, a couple of the episodes. What Destination Freedom was, was a weekly half an hour series. It aired on WMAQ, which was the NBC station affiliate uh, in Chicago. And it was a program that looked at the accomplishments and lives of African American leaders, historic and contemporary. Everyone from Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth, to um, people as contemporary as Jackie Robinson. We're talking about 1948, so by 1947, when he integrated uh, baseball, this was current history. It was, I mean, it wasn't even uh, history, it was current events. Um, to Jane Bolin, who was the first African-American judge in New York. Um, you know, just a range of mathematicians, scientists, artists, uh, Athletes, And so he took these people and he, he did his homework, he did his research, and he found creative, innovative ways to present their stories. And all the stories were different. So, for instance, you'll see here on the screen there's a list of some of the episodes in the series. Uh, there were about 90-plus episodes. He wrote each and every one. And each and every one, he approached them differently. So, for instance, The Knock-Kneed Man is about Crispus Attucks. It was the first show in the series. And it's about this uh, man named Crispus Attucks who, as you may know, was the first uh, casualty of the American Revolutionary War. He was the one who... Um, at the Boston Massacre, massacre helped to organize the folks to protest the uh, British soldier uh, presence in the Boston, um, in Boston. And he was the first to lead a group of citizens to say, we're not taking this anymore, you need to leave. And he got shot and killed. Um, so the knock-kneed man is about Crispus Attucks. Now, here's an example of how Durham would take creative... Um, 
well, not even creative, will take elements of these people's lives and then use that as the narrative to drive the narrative. Uh, one of the things that he found in doing his research that a wanted ad for Crispus Attucks, Attucks was a former slave. And he had tried to escape several times. And as a result of that, he had scars on his back from being whooped. Um, so uh, the description um, in this wanted ad after he tried to escape the first time said that he's a tall, six foot four, six foot two guy who is 25 years old, but he looks older. He's got these cat and nine um, scars on his back as a result of his whippings and he has knees that are slightly closer to each other than knees should be. He's not deep. <laughs> so he used that as the narrative thread to talk about this figure. Uh, on the other side, um, episode number 28 is The Trumpet Speaks, and that's about Louis Armstrong. So what he did was he said, okay, you know, Louis Armstrong was this fantastic trumpeter, um, singer, and innovator. And what he did was he allowed um, Louis Armstrong's trumpet <laughs> to be the narrator. And it takes you through the young Louis Armstrong's life. He was a little um, uh, kid, and he, was, he played hooky from school just so he could get into music and hear some of the greats of that time. Um, but what I'm going to play now is another episode that dealt with someone I think you'll know and, and love and have, have heard a lot about. Um, this was a woman who was born in Brooklyn, um, raised in New York, but at some point early in her life, she had to move south with her mother because of her mother's health. She, the doctors recommended that she move south. So here is a woman who, a black woman, who is born in the north and has to go south they get on a train to, uh, to move south, and this is the first time she experiences Jim Crow segregation. And she experienced it literally when the train pulled into Union Station in Washington, D.C., because after that, she had to move from an integrated train car to a segregated. This woman's name was Lena Horne. And the way that Durham approached telling his, her story is that he cast her as, uh, how, did, how did he say, well, basically, she was Cinderella. But he called the episode Negro Cinderella. And as a Negro Cinderella, her stepsisters were bigotry and racism. So throughout, she is this Cinderella kind of figure, and she's dealing with this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to play the segment of the show, which is near the beginning, that really talks about her getting on this train and then moving into uh, going down south. Or lived where snow didn't fall. And when I stepped on the train, it was like stepping into my golden slippers. Oh, what? Here, young lady. I'll have the bags. Oh, thank you, sir. There we are. Now, your mother's this way, Portland coach. Uh, right in here. Nice and comfortable. I've got a little leg on that footstool. Now, you all can stay here comfortable until we get down to the capital. Then I'll have to be back. I didn't understand what he meant by coming back. But then the train stopped in Washington. I learned. I'm taking your bags on the other coach, ma'am. Then I'll help you. Rouge. You understand? It ain't me. It's, it's them. I understand. Understand what? Come along, honey. Come on. Come along. I went along to another coach with narrow feet and straight backs. I looked for an answer, but in Mother's eyes there was only pain. I sat still while the train rocked along and my mother winced. Then I couldn't be still. I went back to the Pullman we had left. You lost something, girl? No. I was looking for better seats. Well, some of these are still empty. Your first trip south on a train? Yes, sir. Uh, why do they leave me to do the educating? What's the matter? Now look around, Gail. What do you see? People. No, no, you don't see just people. You see white people. 
Only white people. Go on back up at colored people's coach where you belong. It's the law of the land. My mother paid to sit up here. Will you get while the getting's good? I won't. Oh, yes, you will. Now, come. Now, get. I remember the grip as he twisted me around, dragged me through the aisle while passengers jeered and stared and laughed. A girl my age with blonde hair snickered. The door opened. I was thrown into the Jim Crow car. Then I knew my way to the golden slippers would be rocky. I was a Negro. I was Cinderella. My stepsisters were greed and bigotry, backed by those who make profit out of prejudice. When the train rolled into my... And he says, oh, you're even more beautiful in person than, you know, what I've seen on the screen. Can I get your autograph? And the owner comes up and says, you need to get out of here. And she said, what? I just need something to eat. No, we don't serve Negroes here. In the front, if you want anything, you have to go around in the back and then order from there. And she says, well, okay, then clearly I'm not hungry enough. I'm going to leave. So she leaves, and as she's walking out, the kid runs up behind her and says, oh, I'm so sorry, could you please sign my autograph? And she says, you know, it's probably going to be his generation and younger that will kind of step out of this whole segregation and discrimination thing. So that's how it ends. Essentially, this man was talking about issues of inequality and oppression and the lack of freedom. And his, his thrust in throughout the whole series was to talk about these black men and women, heroes and heroines, who used their lives and their accomplishments to, to, to deal with issues of freedom and justice. And so he was able to do this in each and every episode and did it in different ways. The, the next clip I'm going to play is from uh, what is um, episode number four. And it literally aired, um, I think it aired in... July of 1948. It's about Denmark Vesey. And if you know, Denmark Vesey led a slave revolt in Charleston, South Carolina in 1822, nine years before Nat Turner. Most people know about Nat Turner. Not as many people know about Denmark Vesey. But Vesey's um, slave revolt took years to plan, and he had close to, they say, 9,000 co-conspirators, 9,000 people, 9,000 black men and women who were in the slavery system, who said, we need to get out of this, and this is one way of doing it, and he was their leader. Denmark Vesey also was one of the founders of the Emanuel Baptist Church, where the nine uh, parishioners were killed this summer. So, you know, we're talking about the connection to the present. What I'm going to do is play the last section of this particular, well... Yeah, I'm going to play the opening, because what happens is Denmark Vesey was a slave. He wins his freedom as a result of his participation in a lottery, and this is Durham's uh, representation of that. Check. 
Beginner's luck will break me. You gamble heavy. I always gamble heavy. Say, you're Captain Veazey's slave, ain't you? I am. I wonder what had happened to me, say, if I just refused to pay off a slave. I wonder if the courts had bothered me. Uh-huh. Well, I wonder what would happen to me. Say, if I should take a barker's neck between my fingers, like this broomstick, and snap it, like that. They'd hang you. You know it. I gambled once. I'll gamble again. Well, I'm not a gambler man myself. I don't gamble. I'm my own neck. Then how much am I worth? Four thousand dollars. All right. Take it and the devil be with you. tells you the time. Um, so later on, um, he does uh, uh, use that $4,000 to pay for his freedom. And everybody said, you should go up north to get away from the south and from South Carolina, where there's always the danger of you being drawn back into slavery. But he refuses, he de- decides to stay, and he wants to help his fellow um, slaves get out of this prison called slavery. Um, so he plans, he plots, and he plans, and he draws people in. And then finally, at the end, his plot to, um, to deal with this whole revolt is foiled before it really gets traction. He's captured, some of his conspirators, co-conspirators, are um, captured and killed. Uh, and then they have a trial, and he's tried for treason against the state of South Carolina. Um, and so what he does is, in the trial, and the, the great thing about Durham is that he based a lot of his characters on real life and what actually happened. And the, because the VC trial went on for so long, he had the records to say exactly what VC said. And this is um, VC's closing statement. All right, let me fast forward here. The reaching to be free. The reaching fell short. The militia took the arsenal. They say... I have a word to say. Then speak it. You speak of my crimes. I feel no guilt. I felt to be idle while other men fought to be free was a crime. I was not idle. Others talked. I acted. I'd act again. Is that all you can say to explain your treachery? No. My treachery began when I read the Declaration of Independence. It said, all men are created equal. It grew when I read that black Christmas addicts died to help the colonies become free. Did he die just to free white men or all men? Then I read what Ben Franklin, Tom Paine, Lafayette, and Jefferson had said and their words warmed my blood. They wanted their revolution to make all men free and equal. But they stopped with some men free and some men slaves. I took up where they left off. I found my price when I was a slave. I paid. If my life is the price I pay to be free, Take it. I'll pay it. But until all men are free and equal, the revolution goes on. And to have that statement on the air in 1948, coming from a black character, was just unheard of. So it's that kind of... of of really creativity, but also um, political awareness and 
his ability to really kind of express those sentiments on a medium that was like the country, uh, Jim Crow, there was, you could count the number of black images, dramatic images on one hand and probably very few fingers. And yet he was able to do this for two years in you know, a consistent basis. So of course, my question was, how did he come to be as politically savvy and as artistically advanced and creative as he was? And of course, as a result of my work on that series, the black radio series, um, the more research I started to do about Richard Durham, the more I was enthralled by him, and I wondered why no one had written uh, a feature, either a, doc, uh, uh, a biography of him or had done even a piece that was more detailed about him. And of course, if not you, then who? So I decided to go on the journey. But what I want to do now is um, take you through a little bit about exactly who this man was and how he came to be such a dynamic writer and innovator and um, creative person. Um, he, this is him in 1975. By this point, he was working as a writer in television. But he also was Muhammad Ali's autobiographer. So this was actually um, him being interviewed about Muhammad Ali and some of his other earlier work. Um, but he was born in Mississippi, in Raymond. Uh, any Mississippians here? Okay. Anybody? Okay, we are. Uh, near Jackson. Yeah. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, Macon. Macon. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, not far because... Uh, Raymond is just south of Jackson, which is the capital. And so his family is from there, both his mother and father, and they actually owned the land that they lived on, the farmland, 80-some acres, which if you know anything about Mississippi in the 20th century, even coming out of the 19th century, for black people to own the land was phenomenal. But his father did own the land, and these the land, and uh, Raymond is in Hines County, and it's, uh, as I said, just south of, of Jackson. This is his mother and father, uh, Cheney Tillman Durham and uh, Curtis George Durham. Uh, met in Raymond, got married in 1908, and started having children back-to-back. -back. Eight children, two, well, a year and a half to two years apart, so step step children, pretty much. And of those eight children, seven of them survived into adulthood. But the thing that I call the mantra of the Durham family was education. Both his mother and father were avid readers, and they were totally dedicated to education. Cheney, um, even though she only had an eighth grade education, became the teacher of Negro children in Raymond. And his father uh, attended Alcorn State University, well, what is now Alcorn State, but then Alcorn University, and he was able to be there for two years, and then he ran out of money, so he couldn't continue. But education was the key, and they made sure that their, stu that their children were educated and were able to move on to, um, to other things. Now, the, uh, Durham's two oldest brother and sister by the time they got to high school level, there was no way that they could continue their education in Raymond. There were only three black high schools throughout the state, the entire state of Mississippi. So if a child wanted to advance into high school, he or she either had to be in that one or two, three places where the high schools were, or they had to go to boarding school. And so his family, his, his parents, sent their oldest uh, children to boarding school. But with eight children, or at least seven at the time, there was no way that they knew they'd go broke <laughs> trying to educate their kids. So uh, Curtis had some cousins who lived in Chicago, and he went up to visit, and he fell in love and said, hey, jobs are plentiful. This is 1923 at the time. Jobs are plentiful, and guess what? School, which in Mississippi only lasted four or five months, because then they had to get into the planning season. But in Chicago, they lasted 
How long? Nine months. It's like, okay, this is the place to go. And they moved to um, what is now Brownsville. Any Chicagoans in the room? Okay, so Bronzeville wasn't all black then, but it became the place on the south side of Chicago where many black migrants, part of the Great Migration, moved up from Mississippi or Alabama to uh, Chicago. This is the Durham house. It is still in their family. A Durham still lives there. In fact, it's his great-great-nephew. <laughs> but, but yeah, so it's still in the family. They actually moved into this place in 1923. Durham was five years old, and this is where he lived until he married and moved away. It's, um, it is really part of their legacy. And the Durham farm in Raymond remained in their family for 100 years. So we're talking about longevity here. This is Durham in his 20s. Right before, I guess when he was a teenager, he started becoming a vociferous reader. He loved to read, and he loved to listen to the radio. And as a result of his reading, and I'm sure also some of the things he heard on air, he started writing poetry. And so by 1939, um, 38, 37, he's trying his hand at writing poetry, which he believed was one of the highest forms of literary expression expression. So he starts writing and then he sends his work to various places, the Chicago Defender, the Pittsburgh Courier. This is the uh, magazine of the National Urban League, um, Crisis Magazine, you name it. And he's sending his work there and it's getting published. And so this is one of, it's not his first, but it's one of his early poems, Death in the Kitchenette. Um, you'll notice that it doesn't say Richard Durham, it says Isidore Durham, because Isidore is his birth name, and his family called him Izzy, or Iz. He hated that name for some reason, probably because he got, you know, chided, or, or um, his friends kind of, you know, talked about it. So he started, at, when he was a teenager, using other names when he started writing. He was Vern Durham for a while, he was Vern I. Durham, he was I. Durham. And then finally he settles on this name called Richard. And so his, I, you know, I asked, thank goodness, uh, many of his family members were still alive when I started the research. And I said, how did he get to Richard? Was it Richard Wright's influence? He said, no, it was Richard, King Richard I, the so-called warrior king, <laughs> or King Richard the Lionheart. And I think it just kind of, his story spoke to him, and he started using Richard as his name. Um, so... One of his literary heroes, and one of the many, many, many writers that he read and, and loved and synthesized and, and really kind of learned from was Langston Hughes, and this is an early Langston. So here's where research is really kind of key for any uh, project like this. So I'm going through his papers, and then I go to, uh, I believe this is either in his papers or it was in the Langston Hughes papers, and there's a letter from... At the time, he was Vern Durham to Langston Hughes. And actually, that letter didn't exist. But what did exist is this. And this is a letter from Langston Hughes to this kid named Vern. Now, Langston had never met Richard. He didn't know him from Adam. And yet, as he says in this letter, he said, this letter went with me to Paris, to Hollywood, to New York, to California, and back. And I'm so sorry <laughs> that I'm just now getting back to you, but I read your poems, and you show talent, and I, you know, I recommend that you read some other uh, artists like Walt Whitman, even the Bible, to kind of hone your skills. Now, this, this, at this point, 1939, Langston Hughes is a world-renowned writer. <laughs> and yet he's taking time to answer, essentially, a fan. As a result of this communication, they become lifelong friends. And they not only become friends, but they collaborate on different projects. Because I don't know if you know, Langston Hughes also wrote some scripts for radio. And so they collaborated on various projects. Uh, and this is one in which now the mentee is right next to the mentor. Because this is a book from 1941 called... Uh, Poets, poetry for Young Negro Readers. 
Um, here is Richard's poem on the left, and then Langston's on the right, and it's edited by Anna Bontemps. So he's in with the big guys <laughs> and women. Gwendolyn Brooks is also represented in this. And, and Gwendolyn Brooks and Richard Durham were classmates for a short period in elementary school and even just for a brief period when they both went to the same high school. Um, so he does that, and then this is uh, Langston Hughes and Arna Bontoms. Bontoms becomes Richard Durham's supervisor when he applies to work and is hired by the WPA. And the WPA in Illinois was actually called the Illinois Writers Project. If you know anything about the WPA, of course, it was a project during the Depression that an agency, actually, that uh, Roosevelt, the Roosevelt administration, established to try to get people back to work during the Depression. So um, Richard applies to the Illinois Writers Project, and then he's hired, and Bon Toms becomes his supervisor. Well, one of the people he meets and becomes lifelong friends with is, anybody know who this? Who? Anybody know who this? It's Studs Turco. So Studs and Richard are about the same age, um, and they start working uh, together. But here he moves into this atmosphere and this, this uh, really cauldron of creativity where you have men and women like Saul Bellow and Nelson Algren and Jack Conroy and Margaret Walker and Richard Wright and uh, Arna Bontemps who are all part, who are all writers in the Illinois Writers Project. And they're documenting life in Chicago and in Illinois for this project. Well, one day, <laughs> Durham looks over, and there are a group of people sitting around a conference table, and they're arguing, they're discussing, and they're, they're really having a good time, but they're doing this on a regular basis, on a weekly basis. And he goes over, and he sits in, and he finds out that this is the radio division of the Illinois Writers Project. And he's like, it's love. <laughs> he sits in, and then he starts writing scripts for these uh, locally produced dramas that air on Chicago radio stations. And this is one of the early scripts from this period. Um, and he's writing scripts about artists and about um, just you know a range of issues. Not necessarily black issues. In fact, they weren't but about people who are dealing with free issues of freedom and, um, you know, and, and anti-oppression and all that. So he does that, and this is him in 1942. By now, he's married. Here is Durham here. This is David Peltz, who is one of his uh, Illinois Writers Project. In fact, he's a script writer, too. Um, this is Durham's wife, Clarice, who is 95, and she'll be 96 next month, and actually in a couple of weeks. Um, I just saw her last week, and she's doing fine. She's still driving, by the way. <laughs> she's my hero. She's not only driving, she's, uh, she's part of these groups. She's on board. She is a dynamo. And then this is uh, Durham's youngest brother, Earl, and this is uh, Phyllis Peltz, um, Dave's wife. So just to show you that he wasn't all about work and play. He, this is them hanging out at the club <laughs> and, and taking some time off. Um, but then by 1943-44, we're now America's at war in World War II, and he is hired by the Chicago Defender to work as a reporter. Now, he didn't have reporting experience, but he knew how to tell stories. And so he gets mentored by his, um, his editors, and he becomes the top investigative reporter for that paper. Most of the, the articles that he writes ends up on the front page of the uh, Defender, and he wins awards as a writer. Another one of his literary heroes is W.E.B. Du Bois. He was a Du Boisian. He loved um, almost everything that Du Bois wrote, and he read everything that he wrote and felt that his um, critical and scholarly analysis was right on point. Um, the other, the other uh, literary mentor that he really claimed and learned from was not only Richard Wright, but Charles Dickens. Because he felt that Dickens could tell a story and grab the listener or the viewer right from the top. 
Best of Times, Worst of Times, Ebenezer Scrooge, Tiny Tim, you name the characters and you can see them because, not because you necessarily saw a movie, but because on the page they came alive. So those were some of his uh, literary heroes. And this is Durham in the 40s uh, at his typewriter working on the many scripts that he wrote. I will say that just to talk about how he developed from someone who had never worked in radio to then writing as a freelancer for major shows like The Lone Ranger and Ma Perkins. <laughs> so he was really a talented writer. But by 1948, he says, well, you know, I'm writing these 15-minute shows or shows for these other series, and I want to do something that's a little bit more meaningful and that talks about freedom and equality uh, and justice. And that's how Destination Freedom came about. And this is, um, th this is part of the cast for Destination Freedom. And I think you'll recognize, well, you might not recognize him, but this is Oscar Brown Jr., who was a regular on this, this series, along with Fred Pinkard, who would go on to work in film and TV. Wesley Tilden remained a local actress, but a really, really fine actress. And Jack uh, Gibson, who became Jackie Jack, a really well-known DJ in Atlanta. Um, so you have these men and women who become regular cast members for Destination Freedom and some other projects that he worked on. The other thing that's unique is they're working with white actors, which during the time was definitely unusual. This is uh, Durham's mother looking at some publicity pictures from Destination Freedom. And this is, oops, this is the cast, the multiracial cast of Destination Freedom with Homer Heck here is the director and an NBC employee. And then um, they're doing a table read of one of Durham's scripts. Um, and here you have just a closer um, shot of Oscar Brown Jr. looking like he's 10. <laughs> and he was literally a youngster when they met in 1945. He was 18 when he met Durham. Uh, and they, again, remain lifelong friends. That's Wesleyan Tilden, and that's Fred Pinkard. Um, by the time that Destination Freedom was, and this is just the organist you heard, that organ, here he is, <laughs> taking his cues from the script. Uh, and then by the time the series was a year old, um, these cast members had a party celebrating their success, and they had won, by this point, several local awards and national awards. Um, so it was really doing well, and by 1950, Durham wanted to try to take the show national. Because he said that we're getting such great response, um, the station, WMAQ, really loves it, uh, and in most shows start off local, and if they then get the sponsorship and, of course, the listeners, then any network is going to make sure that it goes national and then they can make more money from the show. But WMAQ and NBC refused to do that, and, of course, the question is why, and it's because the sentiments expressed by Durham in his scripts and, of course, through his actors was so vociferous and so... Uh, uh, dedicated and so against racism and inequality and dedicated to freedom that the message was not going to, the, the, the network felt that the, the message would not be received by southern stations. And if you can't get into the southern market, you're cutting down on the potential revenue that you could get. So they said no. And he said, okay, fine. Well, he decides to sue, not because they say no, because he found sponsors who would allow him to not only take his show uh, to the national market on his own, but he also wanted to get into television, because that was the new medium by 1950. And yet what happened was he takes uh, Destination Freedom off the air in August of 1950, and in October, this month, 
1950. He looks into it in his local paper in the Chicago Tribune or the Chicago Sun-Times, and there are these ads for this return of this award-winning series called Destination Freedom. Except this time, NBC is claiming it's theirs, and it's going to be about all-white heroes. <laughs> he said, oh, no. No, not on your life. Well, this will not work, not after all the blood, sweat, and tears that you know, he had to go through. So he gets his lawyer. They go and they negotiate. And, of course, NBC says, well, we own the rights because you were a staff writer. He never was hired by NBC. He was literally um, a freelancer, getting paid on a script-by-script -script basis. They said, well, we came up with the title. Not true. Said, well, we own the copyright. Well, you can go, as I did, to the Library of Congress today, and the copyright says, Richard Durham, Destination Freedom, 1948. So, <laughs> I said, okay. All right, I'm going to sue. And he sues for this. And I'm sure that WMAQ and NBC officials thought, this, this black man is crazy. <laughs> and, but he was so clear that this was his vision that he refused to give it up. And so it wound its way through the courts. In the meantime, he could not work in radio or television as a result of suing, you know, the Goliath of NBC. So he gets into the Chicago labor movement, and he works there as a writer and organizer for the United Packing House Workers of America, which is the union for everyone who worked in meatpacking in Chicago. And as you know, Chicago was really called a stockyard to the nation. So you had thousands of men and women who worked in the stockyards or in the meatpacking industry, and this union represented them. And he's part of the anti-discrimination unit. In that, um, in that union. As a result of that, he gets to interact with uh, a young 26-year-old minister by, who had come up from Montgomery, <laughs> Alabama, because he needed to raise money for this boycott that they had just initiated two months prior. And who is that minister? Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And the, the uh, union works with King to help him raise money to keep the boycott uh, in effect. By the 60s, um, Durham gets a call, and even a little bit before the 60s, he gets a call from representatives of the Nation of Islam. This is Elijah Muhammad, the head of the nation. Um, this is Muhammad Ali, and that's Louis Farrakhan, the current leader of the nation. And they have, or at least Malcolm X, had initiated a paper uh, that was called Mr. Muhammad Speaks initially based in New York, but then the operation moves to Chicago. And they need someone who is a skilled writer who can help them not just get their message across, but to deal with information about what's happening with black people in America and throughout the diaspora, and actually people of color around the world who are fighting for freedom and justice and equality. And literally, that was on the masthead of... Uh, Muhammad speaks. <clears throat> so he decides, well, maybe I should do this. And his brothers and sisters says, why would you do this? You're not even a religious guy. You're not Muslim. And you're going to work for this, um, this paper. But he saw that he could reach thousands of, of readers as a result of this. And so he joins the, uh, the, the team. He becomes the editor. And he, everyone I spoke with said he was the best writer on the paper, and they all learned about telling stories, uh, factual stories, of course, but of what reporting was like and what dealing with issues of the world. So what you had was he's talking about lynching in America. He's talking about what's happening in southern Rhodesia or the Zimbabwe of today, and, of course, Vietnam, and how Vietnam is affecting all soldiers, but particularly black uh, soldiers. Um, he does that. There it is. He does that um, until the end of the 60s, and then he gets an opportunity to finally work in television. And this is the sole soap opera that he creates. It's called Bird of the Iron Feather. And he does that, and it's, it's a really groundbreaking kind of series. You can see episodes of it, the only two that still exist, 
online now. <clears throat> but um, it becomes the number one show or the number one watch show in Chicago on public television, WTTW. And yet it goes off the air only seven weeks after it went on. And it wins an Emmy, by the way. Why did it go off the air? Well, there were a lot of machinations about uh, what was going on behind the camera as well as in front. And the bottom line was that it was a little bit too ahead of its time and too controversial for its time. So it goes off the air. But he, the kind of person that he was, <clears throat> he would have fought to try just the way that he sued NBC. He would have fought maybe WTTW to keep it going and to keep it on the air. And yet he had, his attention was drawn elsewhere. And basically his attention was now drawn to um, this gentleman, uh, who I think you'll recognize, and that's Muhammad Ali. Um, by this time, Muhammad Ali had been banned from boxing because of his refusal to, to serve uh, in the army and go to Vietnam to fight. And so the nation and well, Ali said, well, we want to um, write, have you write a book you know, so that you can make money as well as tell your own story. And they hire uh, Richard Durham as the credited ghostwriter, and he works with Ali for the next five years, traveling with him everywhere to all the fights that he, um, he took on. And then finally, in 1975, the book comes out, and it's translated into French and Spanish and German. But one of the things <laughs> that Random House, and, and they're the ones who publish this book, the only problem that Random House, and Random House, at Random House, Richard Durham's editor was a woman who I think you'll know. She's a, a Nobel Prize winner, Pulitzer Prize winner, um, Toni Morrison. And Morrison was his editor, so he worked closely with Ms. Morrison. And she said the only problem she had with Durham was that he was a fantastic writer, he just kept promising, I'm going to deliver the manuscript and months and weeks and years would go by. And she's like, look, <laughs> we have to have this book. We have invested too much in you and Ali for it not to happen. And finally, it did. But one of the things that Durham wanted to do was he felt, as time went on, that the book needed to end with Muhammad Ali regaining his championship status, which, of course, didn't happen until 1974 when um, Ali fought against George Foreman. Um, finally, in the 80s, um, he reconnects with a friend he had met in the 40s when this friend was a student at Roosevelt University, undergraduate student, and that's Harold Washington. Um, who obviously would become the first black mayor in Chicago. But he had run for mayor twice. The first time was in 1977. The second time was in 1982. Durham joins him, and literally almost every morning on the campaign trail, uh, Richard, um, Harold Washington's uh, driver and Washington would pick up Durham, and they'd go around to campaign stops. He would advise him. He wrote his speeches. He was his cheerleader and media representative. And so by the time we get to the actual election, uh, even though most people thought Harold Washington is not going to make it, he's not going to win, Durham was clear and, and firmly believed that Washington was going to pull it out and win, and he won with 51% of the vote and became the first African-American mayor of Chicago. So he had his hands in a little bit of everything. And the thing that really, not surprised me, but kept me involved with this story was the fact that he was a man who, regardless of the consequences, and he was fired, he lost jobs, he was unemployed at times, but he was clear that writing was his passion, writing with a purpose, writing with the intention of dealing with issues of freedom, justice, and equality, and that everything that he worked on had that theme and had that purpose. And he was a master storyteller. He was a master writer, quiet kind of guy, not the, the man that would be out in front and, you know, hoping to get all the glory. His friends called him the shadows man. But this shadows guy, the guy who stayed in the shadows, was a powerful figure and a powerful voice for freedom, justice, and equality. Thank you.
this thank you um, for your presentation. You. The, the appendix you have shows this um, series every week, right? And you said it was 15 minutes long or half it, hour? It was, um, it was half hour. Half hour. How did he do that? How did he <laughs> do that? There's no break. There's no... No. None. No. For, well, he missed a couple of deadlines. But no, I, I, I have this. He missed a couple of deadlines, but... Um, it was really almost impossible, and yet he did it. Now, Mrs. Durham was right there helping him so that when he came up with this concept, he would sit down and he would type. And, of course, in, in order to get the scripts ready for the actors to then rehearse and practice it, she helped him retype many of his scripts. But in terms of the schedule, he would um, come up with a list of the people he wanted to focus on, send it to NBC. They'd say, yay, nay, whatever. And then he'd go back. He'd go to the library. In fact, uh, the collection where his papers are was the collection that he started to use back in the 40s. And um, um, he would tell them, here's who I need information on. They'd give him the raw data. He'd go through it, figure out how he was going to interpret it. And then by... Thursday of that week, he would have an initial table read with the actors. Um, they'd lay out what sound effects and music they were going to use, come back either that Friday or Saturday, rehearse again, and then Sunday morning, they'd rehearse before it went on the air. And it went on the air live, by the way. <laughs> this was not pre-recorded when they performed the pieces. So it was a massive kind of undertaking. Other questions? How are you? Hey, how are you? Great, thanks. Good um, to I, see you. And I, I'm really sorry I didn't get here for the very beginning of it. But the uh, uh, his his connection with the uh, with, with the Nation of Islam, uh, I'm curious on, on on a couple of different things. Um, what, if any, uh, uh, connection or interaction did he actually have with Malcolm X? Since he's the one who uh, actually had started the paper itself. And the second question is. Um, how did the ties with uh, with Ali end up staying as strong as they were in order for him to do the book? Since I know at a certain point, and it may not have been that early, you know, Ali split with the with the nation as well. No, it wasn't that early. But in terms of Malcolm, I couldn't find any evidence like letters or correspondence between Durham and Malcolm X that um, would say that they had a close or you know any kind of relationship. Plus, Malcolm X was in New York, and Durham always lived in Chicago. Um, but when the split happened after Malcolm uh, was suspended from the nation because of the comment he made about uh, President Kennedy, um, Durham said to his brother, he said, well, you know, it's good that he's getting away. I think that he's going to grow. I am seeing him grow as he started to move around and, and, and embrace uh, traditional or so-called traditional Islam. Um, and that he thought that he would kind of move away from the quote-unquote mysticism that Elijah Muhammad kind of preached and kind of become his own man. So that was the only thing that I found. But in terms of Muhammad Ali, um, he Durham was about 25 years older than Ali, so he was like a younger son. And Durham does have a son um, who uh, who is also a Chicagoan now, and um, so he probably looked at him as like another younger man that he could help to uh, mentor. And they had, uh, at least according to the folks that I talked to, because I couldn't talk to Ali himself, they had a good relationship. He traveled all over with him. He went to his training. He was there when he trained. He was there when he, you know, had his first fight after being suspended. Um, so they had they had a good relationship. And there was at one point where, because it was taking so long for the manuscript to be written, um, someone at Random House said, well, maybe we need to get another writer. <laughs> and Ollie said, no, you don't. <laughs> I, uh, Durham is my man, and we're going to work together, and we're going to get this done. So, yeah. Uh, thank you so much. I'm just thrilled to get this information. I'm a big radio fan myself. Good, good. Um, my question is, or two questions, or two-part. Um, in your research, did you talk to people who you know, had grown up listening to these and sort of get a sense of the effect that it might have had on them personally? 
And also, have they been rebroadcast? I mean, has there ever been a you know series sort of on national yes. radio? Yes, and yes. Um, let me take the second one first. Um, the, as I said earlier, um, two of my colleagues at, at, at uh, Howard had done a special, you know, four-part series for NPR where they took four episodes from Destination Freedom and recast them and contemporized them and then used that and broadcast that uh, to NPR member stations. So that was in 1986, 87, somewhere in there. Um, And then later on in the 90s into the early 2000s, there's a radio producer by the name of, oh, Lord, now, of course, his name just went out of my head, but it's in the book. (laughs) But he then um, got permission from Mrs. Durham to take several of Durham's uh, Destination Freedom scripts and then use contemporary um, actors to recast and, you know, have that broadcast um, on the air in Denver. Um, And so there has been that. And then what I played in the beginning is from an archive of old-time radio shows. Um, it, it does not contain all of the 90-plus shows, but there are about 42 of uh, the original broadcasts that are on that um, archive. So those are available online? They're available online. All you have to do is just Google Destination Freedom Richard Durham, and you'll, you'll get there. <laughs> yes. And in terms of people who I interviewed, um, most of the people I interviewed were either the actors, um, Oscar Brown Jr., um, some folks like Vernon Jarrett, who was a journalist, may have known about and heard some of the episodes, um, of course, his family members. Um, but, but there weren't a lot of people still alive or could, could specifically remember what was going on during that time. I, I had to rely on some of the newspaper reports and, you know, that kind of thing. But, yeah, uh, it was... Oscar Brown Jr. was clearly... Uh, his, his memory at that point was really great, so he could remember specific incidents and, and insights that Durham um, offered as they were preparing this whole uh, a series. And so that was really great, too. Yeah. I'm interested in knowing if uh, Mr. Durham had written anything about his experiences at uh, Muhammad Speaks, since he was sort of an outsider as an editor there, and that was, uh, I think the paper was widely read. It was. No, he did not. Um, And that was, you know, kind of frustrating because he, he did not write about what it meant or what it was like for him to work uh, for Muhammad Speaks. Um, also, he would write some articles, but he didn't, he never had a byline in the paper. So there are some articles you can clearly, I can clearly now see his influence and or his, the way he would write, his his style. And yet um, it either was by byline list, <laughs> there was no byline, or um, it would just say staff. Um, So he didn't take credit for a lot of his work. And I think, again, it's that whole thing about being behind the scenes and being able to say what you want to say and not necessarily needing the glory for it or needing the byline or that. But he didn't write specifically about that. The the one thing that I think most people talk about that I interviewed... um, that they thought that he would do, because he wrote for print, he wrote for radio, he wrote for television, he even, um, you know, dabbled in things regarding film, but he never really wrote a film script. And I think that most people thought, including his best friends and his wife, um, thought that he was going to write, or should have written, the great American novel, that he should be as well-known as, say, a Richard Wright, um, or Toni Morrison, or, you know, you name a writer, a novelist, but he never wrote a novel, although he did start one, and there are, in his papers, notes and um, evidence that he had started this story, which I talk about in the book, but he didn't finish, and I think a couple things happened. One was that he was really, he never worked doing anything else but writing. So from the 40s, actually from the 30s, 
through his death in 1984, he was a writer. He made his living as a, write, a writer. So I think that in order to write a novel, you have obviously have to have time. And if you're not making money while you're working on this creative piece, then you know something's got to give. And what I think gave was the novel. Um, because he went to um, projects where he could make money to support his wife and his son. Um, that's one thing. The other thing is I think that by the time he maybe had some, some money, because uh, the greatest, he and um, Ali got a $250,000 um, advance. And I don't even know how much they earned in terms of royalty. So by this point, in the 70s, he's probably doing pretty well financially. And so he had um, maybe some resources that he could take off to write the great American novel. But, you know, his health started to be an issue, and he probably was a little tired. So I don't, you know, I don't know. But, yeah, I wish he had written because he really was a lyrical writer, um, and he found ways to entertain, but while he was entertaining, he was also infusing it with knowledge. And so it was almost this undercover kind of thing. Yeah, I'm going to you know, do this wonderful slick thing on top, and underneath is this whole uh, philosophy about freedom, justice, and equality. And the fact that by what you say and how you write whatever it is that you're writing, you can get your point across. And inspire people to positive social change. I think that was the other thing about him. He was all about not just freedom, um, justice, and equality, but how you can use your words and your storytelling to you know, create change, positive change on a social level. Yeah. Any, any other questions? Well, no? Nothing? Well, thank you, thank you, thank you for coming, and um, I hope that you'll get the book, enjoy it. If you have any questions, um, you can also go to my website where I have a link to Destination Freedom as well as to Bird of the Iron Feather and the two episodes that are the only two that exist, and so thank you. Thank you so much.